with this evening's talk, we'll uh, explore, to some degree, we'll explore karma, which is the Sanskrit word. <clears throat> the Pali word is kama. And beginning uh, with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'll begin by saying something that I've found to be uh, quite helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with uh, uh, a more deep understanding uh, of the teachings of Kama. And this is that the teaching, uh, the teaching about Kama offers and brings uh, an ever clearer light, brings to an ever clearer light a path, a path of practice that actually isn't based on fear, fear of, or belief in any higher authority or what some people call a supreme being. But rather, it's founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, as as it relates to all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on Kama is not not really so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and to know it in operation. As a Western woman, and I think that I can safely say this for most all of us, all of us who have been primarily brought up and conditioned uh, in Western-oriented countries, that it's actually been kind of a relief uh, to discover that it turns out that Kama is not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching and relevancy and the understanding of Kama, which is actually one of uh, Buddhism's central themes, is, is really quite accessible and it's even quite ordinary. And maybe so ordinary that somehow it might uh, elude our very complicated minds. So what is Kama? Etymologically, or the root word of kama, is action, or it's sometimes uh, 
defined as deed. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. So another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on, we could say, motivation. In English, the word of motivation, I think, has a somewhat deeper uh, and subtler meaning than the word intention. The, For instance, meaning the motivation in the mind behind or underneath the, or preceding, we could say, intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done. Deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor, we could say, responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, which leads to actions, both creative actions and destructive actions. And really, this is the essence of kama. And some words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention leads us to choose or to act or to speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome kama. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So, a very ordinary example, just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws which, through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience, 
begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created and combined and intensified throughout our life begins to be clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own deep practice, I've discovered and and it was quite amazing and illuminating when I began to discover it, is that in the context of the teachings And in our practice of the Dhamma, intention actually has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way it's usually understood in everyday English. I think we usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions. So... For instance, <clears throat> I did that intentionally. Or or we might uh, think, is that really what you meant to say? So that kind of immediate uh, connection. <clears throat> the Buddha's teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the responses of the heart to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic benefit of these choices. So in other words, intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, the heart, responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens and we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience, we, we come to know that intention is the force, we could say, that organizes the movements of the mind, which means that intention is a, a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action 
is the mental impetus. That's the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. So basically this is the teaching of cause and effect, cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle. It's an energy, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. And it's possible to actually experience this process occurring, even on a very subtle level, when mindfulness is accompanied by a a clear and deep and strong momentary or kanaka concentration, kanaka samadhi. Or when mindfulness is accompanied uh, with a very clear, strong mindfulness that is uh, uh, coming out of and coming out of a very well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, <clears throat> consider that even one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without some consequence. It'll result in at least a a, a little speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shape our mental activity. And if this is practiced repeatedly and repeatedly over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression and speech or in actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits, for instance, uh, and even through our bodily makeup, such as maybe very phys- various physical expressions and even our physical features, as well, of course, in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. And even the responses and reactions that come to us, that we in a sense draw to us from external sources, can sometimes show up in a very similar repetitive way, as I'm sure you've noticed in your own life and be strengthened if and when we're unaware when we're not mindful and we're repeating we're repeatedly acting out or practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like this. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we could say everything rests on the tip of intention. 
a painful or a destructive kama, a painful or destructive intention, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember uh, once, uh, quite a number of years ago, when I was sitting a retreat, and I, I got a note uh, uh, that was not at all pleasing to me. So I proceeded, uh, right after reading that note, to kind of angrily tear it up and put it in the wastebasket. <laughs> and of course, that piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself. But the action certainly did have some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. So in contrast to this, more recently, actually, here in this retreat, a number of times now, uh, through these weeks, I took the notice a, a number of times, took a notice off the note board down in the dining room that was no longer uh, relative to, to the time. And I just crumpled it up and in a neutral, very neutral, with a very neutral attitude, neutral intention, and put it in the wastebasket. With that action, of course, producing a very... A different effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. Again, if we repeatedly act out of an angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer to us, and it may develop uh, to a more and more significant level as time goes on if we keep repeating training the mind, we could say, in that way. In the chain of, or the wheel of dependent origination, or what's sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha, or ease, that we have via each of the six sense doors come to be, how they manifest and then cease to be. Kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. So in light of this uh, discussion, and this part of the discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Buddhist scholar Venerable Paiuto. This is from his book, um, Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddhist, te- Buddhist Teaching. He's a Thai Buddhist scholar. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck that is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind, but the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, 
specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight on a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But, it's, but if it's necessary to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. So, in relationship to this teaching from the Venerable Paiuto, you might remember um, that uh, it might have been the first Dhamma talk, I'm not sure, it was a while ago. Uh, uh, there was, there's a wonderful section of short suttas from the uh, Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, which I shared a few of uh, in uh, a talk, seems like years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, <laughs> So I'd like to share just a, a part of, of one of these same uh, short dialogues that I've already you know, read as an illustration regarding uh, what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse about the bhikkhu or the monk who, after returning from his daily alms rounds and eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, uh, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. So you might remember that one. And the fact that when the deva, uh, who lived in that same woodland thicket, saw this, she thought, well, having, a received, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the, into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. And she kept thinking about it, and she said, if his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. So then she thought, let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in this monk to practice with more uh, urgency, the deva addressed the monk as flowers. Addressed the monk as flowers. Addressed the monk as follows. <laughs> I'm just going to read a section of it that relates to what we're exploring this evening. So the deva is speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the monk replies, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? 
one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior. Why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. So the refinement of the mind makes things look as big as a cloud sometimes. <clears throat> the understanding um, that the various experiences of stress or suffering and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought and of speech and of deed right here and now in this lifetime, in this very day and then on back and back and back and back this is kama, this is our kama we're born, we spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So, a very ordinary, everyday example. Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action We've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us uh, as what we could call our due inheritance. So, what does this mean? We could say that with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease in our mind and heart is the outcome, meaning that it's the response or the reaction in our own mind in relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience. That's what produces the ease or dis-ease in the mind and the heart. So I'm going to say it in another way because it might seem a little bit complicated. It's actually not. But. So in, in other words, saying it in another way, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, 
and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious or strange or foreign world. It's due to our responses, our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to what is occurring. The Dalai Lama said, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from our own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues uh, to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more off, more and more often lead to wholesome responses, creative choices, rather than to unwholesome reactive, destructive choices. In its very powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing in, promoting health when we eat them at the right time and, of course, in the right amount. And some foods are harmful. harmful. Some foods bring dis-ease or disease. And some foods might even be poisonous for us. Sometimes maybe even deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind underneath the potential action and we feed ourselves and thus others healthy food and consequently create healthy karma. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and we come to live our understanding, knowing that we are, in fact, the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of karma and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace 
and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict, we're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience fear and anguish and grief and dissonance and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, where it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? Once we really begin to understand that, what is there to fear? The heart, the mind, then begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped, running around and around and around the karmic wheel. It's as though all of us are artists. But instead of canvas or paint or clay or maybe marble or, or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our mind, our very mind and body and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. So again, one of the great benefits of our practice that comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we begin to understand and to live our understanding, knowing that we are, in fact, the owners of our our karma, the heirs of our karma, and that in this knowing, We can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thought whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, are conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, meaning our understanding, with our views often showing up as maybe our beliefs and our preferences, which 
are one, what then direct our motivations, what direct our intentions and the resultant thoughts, which potentially flow out then into words and to actions. So, simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we, for instance, cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself and other beings and things and even situations, experiences and places as being independent, separate and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding. We're motivated by ignorance. We're ignoring the truth of things. Consequently, we're motivated by what's called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions and our motivations are actually coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place. And consequently will inevitably bring some degree of suffering to ourselves and to others. If we have the understanding, if we are experientially through our practice growing into understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that in fact the causes and the conditions themselves are always in flux, always in a process of change. That nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. Then our intentions, our motivations come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations come out of what in the Buddhist teachings is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from then a place of harmony and what I like to call a lightness of being and are more and more often appropriately responsive to any given situation and consequently then are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. Some words from the Buddha about this in a much simpler way than I've just explained it, actually. (laughs) Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, 
disagreeable, yielding to no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriments are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. And then he goes on. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, and conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self or me or I is at least in part and very often a reference to the body for most of us, pretty much all of us. And as we very briefly explored uh, in an earlier Dhamma talk, Uh, when we talked about this body, the body, uh, that the body is, is actually not a solid something, but a process made up of many elements, with each and all of them being in continual flux. And that's about all I mentioned, I think, in regard to this at a, in a previous talk. So what I'm referring to are the experiential characteristics of the four great elements and we come that we come to know through our practice. So this evening, uh, I'd like to just share uh, briefly what these are. The four great elements are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind or the air element. Now that's conceptual. It doesn't really mean anything in terms of experience. But what does mean something is are the characteristics in relationship of how each of these elements are expressed in our body, experientially, sensorially. So the characteristics that we experience every day over and over and over and over and over again, the characteristics of the earth element that we can actually directly experience and know are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The sensorial characteristics of the water element that we experience all the time, every day, that we can directly know experientially, sensorially, are the sense of flowing, 
and a sense of cohesion. The fire element, really an easy one. Heat or warmth or cold or coldness or coolness. Right this minute, if you stop for a second, you're going to know one of those in this very moment. The wind or air element, a little bit more, maybe not as obvious to us experientially. The characteristics are supporting and pushing. This experiential, we could say non-ordinary, understanding of the body, a relationship experientially, sensorially, knowing the body, can be an important and actually an illuminating step on the path to right view in relationship to directly, experientially understanding impersonality, not self. It's in this light, in fact, that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the various shifting patterns of our life. Some of these seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some of the seeds may be dormant for many, many years, maybe many lifetimes, And it's kind of, we could kind of translate that to what we call heredity. Until the exact combination and causes and conditions arise that germinate the seeds. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. So a very obvious and clear metaphor that's often used in the Buddhist teachings uh, is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. If we plant poppy seeds, no matter how much we wish for and might hope for, lettuce will not grow from poppy seeds. So, you know, very basic uh, example a loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. Angry or hateful acts at some point produce hateful fruit. So some words that we began the talk with, the Buddha's words. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. An important um, and maybe obvious point here uh, is that not-self or impersonality behind our actions really does not discount our 
responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself known, makes itself felt. And we, so we need to couple our understanding of selflessness or not-self with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and our actions and the karmic fruit that's produced. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of our intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede the actions of the mind, of the spe- of speech, and of the body. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, then unwholesome and unskillful, when they, when they arise, when unwholesome and unskillful intentions arise, we very well may mindfully act on them and consequently then create the conditions for immediate or some future suffering. And some words regarding this from Padmasambhava, who was said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of Kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our intentions before we speak or act and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said or performed has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choice as we practice to purify and transform the mind and the heart and our actions. So that in fact then we're not just running on automatic, not running on habitual ways of thinking and speaking and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity and loving kindness and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. George Dawson said that. You remember the story. It all comes back. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with, for instance, aggression or anger or judgment or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that, and this is really important, it's not so important where your present suffering came from but where you take it from here. Meaning that what's important is how you approach the situation in or of this moment. That's what's most important. So, again, uh, an example, uh, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it might be, is compassion. 
as we traverse this uh, path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, we could say. A refuge where suffering and confusion and fear and anger and resistance and discontent and clinging, it's a long list, where this can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. So refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts and words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to really be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of the good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And of course our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very, very good deed, the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in all aspects, throughout all aspects of our life. One of the things that's really been important for me uh, in understanding Kama is that it's always, always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's actually never too late. I mean, some of us have the conditioning uh, that goes something like, well, too bad, it's too late. Or we might be thinking, well, I'm too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. This, none of that's true. Absolutely not true. It's never, ever too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we really know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than the increase of the good? As this becomes more and more of a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil, more serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm and focused mind, a patient heart, and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to all the various challenges and difficulties that come up through our practice and in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than an adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of a deed seems to bring us maybe some sorrow or maybe some kind of discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or maybe some turmoil in our life 
or maybe some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that might show up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be what we expected, may not be what we had in mind when we did them. Results that are maybe contrary to what we might think our intention or our motivation was. Many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately would say for me, at appropriate times in our therapy process together, she would say for me, this isn't what I had in mind. Which would always really stop me in my tracks when she would say, she didn't say it a lot, but she said it a few times and it would stop me in my tracks. And it would then move me to really take a look, take a very close look at my motivations and my expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to really simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and with as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. Maybe it feels sometimes like quite a stern friend and maybe in a certain way a kind of demanding teacher, yet potentially a truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which for probably all of us seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. So I'd like to uh, close with a story or part of a story. Um, from a book called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucien. Jacques was a man uh, who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography. And it very beautifully, in a very unique way, illustrates, uh, illumines, I could say, illuminates our discussion about Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind. And being blind was not not at all as I imagined it. Nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. There was anguish, a lack, something like a void, which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. 
Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the moment of sight, to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience, which kept renewing itself inside me, my secret, and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believe me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it, in, I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. When I moved between obstacles the way then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. 
What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtled, mutter, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer where, knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. The mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small, small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. She or he has to learn it. For every time she or he forgets that she's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts herself or himself, and is called to order. But each time she or he remembers, she is rewarded or he is rewarded, for everything then comes her or his way. We're not done. Thank you, though. <laughs> not quite done. So, closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect, reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And then the Buddha goes on to say, all conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.